as I got deeper into serious radio, I found the line that I really always felt I wanted to close on. And that line is what we do in life will echo in eternity. Gentlemen and ladies, brothers and sisters, people, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gavis, and each week I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks, just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears, and let's get into this. Come on. Yes, yes, we are back. I am extremely excited today. Uh, It's probably going to be one of the most uh, exciting interviews that I've done thus far uh, with a man who is literally a legend uh, of our time. But before I introduce him, I'm going to read something that uh, he once read to me uh, that he has memorized on his soul and it typifies who he is. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That is Invictus. Jimmy Myers, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let me give you, for, the, for those of you who don't know, I'm going to give you a, uh, a quick background, a quick summary that does not uh, scratch the surface of what this man has accomplished in 50 years in broadcast radio. Started as a weekend sports anchor at WBZ in Boston. Transitioned uh, where he was the first black male, black sportscaster on SportsCenter. Paved the way for people like Stuart Scott, Stephen A. Smith, Jamel Hill, Jay Harris. Then he came to NYC, worked at Channel 9, WWR-TV, one broadcaster of the year. Went back to Boston, this time as a triple media star. Worked on the radio, WEI, was Fox 25 Celtics basketball coverage, and had his own sports variety talk show called the Jimmy Myers Sports Exchange from 90. Uh, 1990 to 1993, one of the interviews uh, that he did during that time was of Ruben Hurricane Carter. Uh, That interview actually led to Denzel wanting to play the role when he saw it. Over his 50-year career, Jimmy has won four Emmy Awards with 17, staggering 17 (laughs) nominations. And here he is. Today on the Truth Prescription to dole out fifty years of truth mm. in this two part uh, this two part segment. Okay, well let's start with some truths. Uh, I was not the first African American at um, at ESPN. Uh, that was Greg Gumble, I believe, and I may not even been the second or third, but Greg Gumble and I are the first two African Americans to ever anchor Sports Center. Well, that, yes, so we that's, came. Yes, we came long before. Yes. what you have today. Um, yes. Of those years, so many of those years, you said yeah. 50 years in radio. 50 mainly. years. Yeah, mm-hmm, but it was, I, my love is radio, but I've done television for those 50 years as well. So yes. I've been blessed to be able to do both and the Internet now. Yes. I've been able to do that. Uh, write, I've written for magazines, newspapers, uh, and so much of my my work has been seen around the world and or heard around the world. And that's, that's a glorious thing. Yeah. Uh, some of the great, some of the greatest, one of the greatest interviews obviously is Ruben Harry King Carter, because yes. I knew his story Yeah. because I wound up 
getting into one of my final battles at Channel 9 and giving up my job the day that Reuben Hurricane Carter was released from Broadway Prison. Yeah. It was uh, November 8th, I believe it was November 8th or 8th, 8th or 9th. Um, and I, I had a um, an incident that occurred where I wrote the script the way I wanted it. And yeah. this um, executive producer came in and he said, uh, no, 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 this is not going to do it. I said, well, you don't know the story. I know the story, but once again, a conflict with management and one of many. And the thing was that here was a person who was a young, um, young white man, a Jewish, young Jewish white man who knew nothing about Reuben Hurricane Carter. I had written a man in prison. I had tried to see him several times. He even wrote back. I mean, I had a relationship with this guy and I was so happy that day because I already knew that I was leaving channel nine because it just wasn't working there. There were two incidents alone that, um, that sparked my exit long before the three-year contract was up. Uh, when I went to work for channel nine, well, when I was offered the job, the first thing I told them was I did not want to work for a station that, was going to put its technicians on strike. Now, the history right. of this is as such. Right. I had gone through a 17 and 19 week strike when I was at Channel 4 in Boston. Many of my friends stood out on that picket line. I spent so much of my own salary supporting some of their families because I knew it was wrong. They weren't striking. They were locked out by management. Now, when you say technicians, you mean camera operators? Camera and, operators, okay. videotape, videographers, uh, the people who did all your editing, all the backbone people of a station and I just felt it was so wrong and I told myself I cannot work in a situation like this again and every day I went to walk by these people not one of them ever harassed me they said Jimmy we know what you're doing for a lot of our line people out here we know that you're spending more money than than you could ever afford you're hemorrhaging money and why are you doing this well one of my one of those people were my room was one of my roommates and the other one would become my roommate they were two uh cameramen and this experience, it truly scarred me, Seku. Mm-hmm. It really, really did. I told myself, I don't ever want to go through this again. Plus, yeah. my dad had been in um, the Teamsters. And Jimmy Hoffa actually came and ate at our house one night. He walked mm-hmm. into our mm-hmm. kitchen and sat down with my father. Now, my father wasn't a big muckety-muck, but he was a powerful voice in the union. And Jimmy Hoffa was there to try to talk my father into bringing a lot of the Philadelphia truck drivers into the union, which they did. But my father was always a union man. And consequently, his oldest son would be a union man. Hmm. And I told myself this, I will never allow something like this to happen again in my life. Well, I'm not on the job. I'm on the job less than a couple of months. And I find out that the technicians are going to be locked out at midnight. Yeah. Now, what I did, I went to my general manager's office. One that day I had worked with a temperature of 102 hundred and two. Mm. And I just believe in going to work. <laughs> Sound like Jordan game, just game be- six. <laughs> I just believe in going to work. Right. And I did, I did, I had done the eight, the eight o'clock news, uh, news nine primetime noon and eight. So I just finished the eight o'clock newscast and I could barely stand up. So I went to his office and I did, he was not there, but his secretary, a black woman was there and very nice woman. She said, uh, you don't look well. Why don't you go home? I said, well, I'm going to go to the hospital. I want to be checked out and so forth and so forth and so forth. So you go to the hospital. I'm sitting there for hours and hours and hours. Finally, a nurse saw me instead of the doctor. She said, you don't look well. You should go home. Just so happens the next day. <laughs> In the hospital? The next. Oh, yeah. She told me to go home. She says, the next day is the strike. The yeah. next day is the lockout. Yeah. So I don't come in. I'm in bed. Yeah. And I get a call from this young Jewish gentleman whose name is not really important because he's not that important. Um, but more important, Is that guy still working in, in radio I TV today? Okay. I don't know. I, I don't know, and I really don't care. He worked there. He worked in the business for a while, though. But he had a reputation of trying to be a tough guy with black people. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a bully. Mm-hmm. He was a person that hollered and screamed, which uh, that doesn't move me because I've had too many white men who think they have power because all power is illusional. Just yes. remember that. Keep yes. that. The only power in this world truly lies above this world, up yes. in heaven. And yes. that's the only person with true power. But many white men want to think that they do. And I have to say white men because there's some black men there to try to think the same thing. But once you're hung up into that, you're, you're on the wrong plane. But let me get back to this. So he calls my home and he threatens me. 
well, you better bring yourself to work. You better be here or else you'll be suspended. And I said, well, you know, at the time I'm right and I'm a time schedule. I want to make sure my timeline is right. I hadn't even signed my contract. Mm. I'm working without a contract basically right, for like right. four to five weeks. Yeah. They couldn't figure it out. But the moment I started working, I get a call from CBS. Van Gordon Sauter was the head of uh, CBS Sports at the time. Asked me to come over and talk to him. So I went over and talked to him. And I told him, I said, you know, it'd be very easy for me to walk out of here, come over here. I could do the morning sports drive right. for about five times more than I'd be getting paid here. And he says, well, let's take a look at what's going on here. So the word got back that I was in the CBS building. I don't know how it got back. So Peter Leone, who was the general manager, calls me and says, I understand you're being offered uh, a job at, uh, at, at CBS. Well, just because we haven't written your contract, da, 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 and, he's, and he's talking at me like I'm his child. I said, well, first thing's time out. Time out. I don't know where you heard this from. You didn't hear it from me. Right. And two, I don't care about CBS. I'm going to do what I was. I'm, I'm, I'm scheduled to sign a three-year contract here. I don't know why the contract hasn't been done so far. And I don't know why we're going through this. Make a long story short, I didn't go. Maybe I should have tried to pitch CBS, yeah. but I didn't. No, I said no. The reason being is that I called my dad and I said, Dad, listen, um, there's some rumors going around that you know I could be going to CBS or I got a chance. I have a chance to go to the ABC, NBC, one of the networks right here in New York. And my father said, Did you make a deal? I said, Yes, but I haven't signed anything. He says, Did you shake hands over the deal? Because I remember the day I went to lunch with them. I came down to New York. They took me to lunch. I shook hands. He says, then you have a deal. That's the end of this conversation, son. And we're not going to have it anymore. It's the kind of man my father was. I'm saying, fine. Mm. I can live with that. Mm. So in you know, the midst of this. It's interesting, though, because mm -hmm. your father's honorable, right? One of the most but, honorable men I've ever met. But it's one of those situations where you're approaching a situation with honor with unhonorable people. Oh, well, that's, and that's, that goes back way before Channel 9. Right. This right. goes back from the beginning of my career. But to make yeah. a long, to, to, to cut to the chase of this story, I got a, I got a note from the nurse on Dr. Stationery. Sure. She had seen me and so forth and so forth. And she signed the doctor's name. How many times do nurses sign doctor's names? All the time. All the time. They call the doctor. He says, well, I didn't see Mr. Myers and so forth. So they call me in. Now they want to threaten me. You know, you said that, 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 that. I said, look, I was seen. Right. Then I went to New Jersey and saw another doctor. <laughs> Got a letter from him. They don't want to hear it. I, just, I said, look, if you're having a problem with this, you can fire me right now. Yeah. Because I'm not about to kiss your butt and make you think that I'm going to be your slave for the next two <laughs> or three years. Because this is not going to happen, right? right? That was the beginning. The end would come later. But all this told me was more than anything that management was not to be trusted. And I mm -hmm. felt bad about that because when I first went to work at channel four, it was, um, I walked in, well, let's go back to the beginning. That's just one. That's, that's a highlight incident. And I'll try to make these stories as quickly as possible, as quick as possible, because I, I, I could just tell you. So take your time. Things. Take your time. We're going to jump in in truth prescription, but finish mm -hmm. your story. But finish what's going to happen, what, what will happen is you'll see a painted picture. Mm -hmm. You'll see a road that was traveled mm -hmm. with constant betrayal and deceit. Yes. And what happens is you build up a shield and sometimes you may even make mistakes because of all the things that have been done to you. You become Overly protective. You just right. say, no, no, I'm right. going to strike before <laughs> right. they strike You me. walk in the room slapping. Right. I'm walking in the room. <laughs> I'm walking in the room. Guns, guns out. <laughs> right, right. Two guns. Right. Two, 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 no, no. So, uh, not two guns. Right. Two, but two, two guns. Two, 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 two semi-automatics. You say, <laughs> right. okay, who wants to walk out of here? Who wants to survive for messing with this, this crazy young black person? You know, my, my entire life. It's funny. And radio basically started. I was at Boston University, freshman, and we used to hold this little thing in the BU, in the BU Miles Standish Hall lounge called, I invented it called the hot seat. Well, the Budweiser hot seat is now what it was. I also gave that to ESPN lit, lit years later. I would come in and sit down. I'm from Philly, and I talked to all these guys from New York right before Monday night football game. Monday night football came out at 9 o'clock. We'd be in the lounge like 8.30. So I said, wow. There's some money to be made here. Mm -hmm. Let's sit around and talk about who knows the most about sports. 
and nobody could win. You couldn't knock mm. me off the seat. So if you give me a dollar, a dollar, I put my dollar there. Come on. It, 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 so so how was it like you, you had to answer a sports question? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, you, know, and, you, know, you, had to, you had to show knowledge okay. of, of, of the, not, not trivia. You had to show knowledge of the well, tell, well, tell me about the Giants' offensive line, why it doesn't work. And, so, and, uh, and I'm going, okay. well, this is why the Giants' offensive line doesn't work. They're cross-blocking here, and they're not back. They're not back shielding the uh, the quarterback. And the Giants were lousy at that time anyway. So all these New York guys thought they knew everything. So then they shifted to basketball. Mm. Then they wanted to shift to to um, hockey. No, no, baseball. 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 Oh, you hockey. know baseball. Oh, well, they, they, <laughs> you but they know didn't baseball. know that. They were in trouble. <laughs> right. They didn't even know they were in trouble. They didn't even know. that. Now, hockey, remember, there was no hockey team in Philadelphia. Right. Until 1967. That's so what I don't see the Flyers one time, basically, before I went off to college. But I did come up to New York. And by being in New York, my, one of my uncles used to work at the garden. We used to sneak in the garden and watch the Stinky Rangers. So I did have a clue about the game. But I didn't really study the game as much as I would after I got into uh, into the business in Boston, thanks to Bobby Orr. But um, so this guy walks by. And his name is Alan Grooveman. I remember Alan Grooveman for the rest of my life. He's seeing me whole court one night. That's a whole lounge full of people. And everyone's listening to me. Which is so interesting because it, it, it is almost like an embodiment, uh, a, a pre a prequel to uh, the uh, the show that you had. The I mean, sports the, exchange. The, the, the mm-hmm. sports exchange that you eventually had. I mean, this mm-hmm. show was amazing. You had an entire sports bar yep. where you were the center of attention and you would walk around and talk sports and talk trivia and have people and play games. And it was amazing. It was yeah, an amazing is, three-year run. So yeah, this was before was, that. Mm-hmm. So, well, this is probably the beginning of that. So he right. says, listen, he says, um, he comes up to my room, he knocks on my door. He says, listen, I'd like to talk to you for a minute. I said, yes. He said, um, he says, I see you got this little thing going downstairs and so forth. I said, yeah, it, 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 it turns a small profit. <laughs> he says, why don't you, I'd like you to come on my radio show. Mm. I said, cool. I knew nothing about radio other than you turn it on, listen to some music, and you turn it off. How old were you at that time? 19. Wow. So I said, well, what am I going to do? He says, I just want to talk sports to you. I'm going to bill you as the guru of Milestandish Sports. This guy knows just about everything. Now, where do you get your background from? Well, I worked in a candy store. I had to read four to five newspapers a day, every day. And I couldn't start in sports. I had to start in the front and end in the back. So you read all the serious stuff first. And this Jewish gentleman, Alexander Frankel, who I will tell you from this day to the day I die, I owe him a part of my life. My mom, my dad, and Al, they were my three parents, and they mm. demanded so much. And when Sports Illustrated first came out, I couldn't afford Sports Illustrated. And a little bit of, I had a little, little, little weekly job, but, but I couldn't afford Sports Illustrated. So what I used to do, they used to deliver your Sports Illustrated and put them on your step. Mm-hmm. I used to go take the Sports Illustrated, read it, read it, read it, read, it, read the whole thing fast, and put it back. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Ford, now, the funny part was the old ink they used would leave your fingerprints on it. Uh-huh. So they said, you know, somebody's touching our Sports Illustrated. So they had the mailman bring it in. So I told the mailman, could I put Mr. and Mrs. Ford's uh, Sports Illustrated? It's Mr. Ford's. He said, sure. So he gives it to me. I immediately had a pair of rubber gloves, Playtex rubber gloves. Like, put them on. Turned every page with these red sports illustrated with Playtex gloves latex, on. Latex, latex. My mother, late, no, no, it was Playtex at that time. Play, playtex gloves, oh. some, sometimes real. real it, it's like um, it, it, it's like um, it's like a heavy duty glove that you would use, but it's rubber, rubber, rubber for okay. washing rubber dishes glove. and stuff. Uh, okay, right? yes, yes. And they were probably made of latex. But I'm sitting there and I'm laughing, thinking of doing this. Mister Ford didn't catch on for like a year. By that time, I said, hey, this is great. So I went over and asked Mr. Ford about a year later, what do you do with your Sports Illustrated when you're not when, when you're done with them? I just throw them away. I used to pick this man's trash. I used to wait to see him come down the steps with his trash. Choom, choom. <laughs> so now I have crates of Sports Illustrated. Crates of them. I'm the, I mean, big crates. Each one stacked neatly. I took... Um, uh, what do you call it? Saran wrap and wrap the outsides of just to make a book cover, okay. make a book cover of Saran and just lay them gently on each other. Wow. And then every now and then I would, I would just go back and open up a certain edition that I liked and read over. And 
my love for sports grew through basically through Al Frankel, the television in a candy store. I watched every single sporting event. I became a Boston Celtic fan in Philadelphia, mainly because Boston had a black, had, a, had an ultimate black star. Bill Russell looked like this this haunting figure. Like this is a guy you would not want to go down an alley if he was down there, unless right. he was on your side. Right. And then I started to learn about his life and all the stuff that was going on. So to make a long story short, from there all the way up to from the beginning of becoming a little sportscaster, and I would read At to nineteen. My, no, no, no. This is this is this had to be twelve. Mm. I used to read to my father. My father worked two jobs, so we would get home. He'd be ready to go. He'd be bleary eyed in in the morning. He would say. Had to die. He's a big Dodger fan. Had the Dodgers do last night? Well, Dodgers won four to one. Sandy Koufax pitched a three hitter. Tommy Davis had three hits. Mario Will scored three runs. Bingo. First mm-hmm. sportscast. Yeah. My father yeah. said, boy, if you would ever just study your books like you study those <laughs> damn newspapers, sports and sports illustrated. Yeah. It'd be amazing. Huh. So we swing up to Alan Grubman now. All this knowledge is in my head and I'm blowing all these guys away and I'm taking their money. Mm-hmm. So Alan says, I want you to come on my show. So I said, all right, I'll think about it. So Thursday night comes and the show is on, right? So I go in, I sit down and like for, it's just, it, it took me like, he introduces me and tells, you know, I've seen this guy in the, in, in the Miles Dennis lounge and he just knows, he knows so much about sports. So I'm noticing this phone is flashing. You have two phones there and they have two lines on the phone and one is flashing and just keeps flashing. And I'm so unsophisticated to go, you know what I do? I said, Man, will somebody in here answer this phone? Because this is it's, it's pulling my eye contact right, away from. Right. It's just annoying. Yeah. So Alan, now there's he produces his own show. All you can do is turn a couple of buttons in the in the uh, college radio station, and you're on, right? Alan says we don't have a producer. I said, well, we're just here alone. I said, well, what's that? I said, what if that's an important call? And he looks down a second time. Oh my gosh, it's a call. We never get calls on this show. Are you kidding me? Oh, we're taking it back. Hi, right, you're on da, 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 with Jimmy Myers. So it's one. It's now it's only B WTBU was a five thousand watt station. So it went around the campus. Okay. So and not, so not. So it's got to be somebody. It's got to be somebody from local. So, yeah, I want to talk to this this guru, this sports guru. Yeah, I play on the football team. Why don't you tell me what's wrong with the BU football team? I said, Okay, interesting. Do you really want to know? He said, Yeah, I really want to know. Okay, well, you know. one, offensively, you you people are stagnant. I said, you you ha- you're gonna have to learn now. Now remember, this is 1968. I'm not talking about 2008. Yeah. I said, you're gonna have to spread the field and throw the ball more. This conventional just run, 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 or run, run on first, second down, pass on third down, punt on fourth down. It's not working. It's just not working. I said defensively, I said you are always vulnerable to be gashed up the middle. Nobody right. heard gashed. Right. Now I used to use it all the time. I said to be gashed up the middle. They just run the ball straight down your throats and there's nothing you can do to stop it. <laughs> so while I'm talking to him, the second line rings. And Alan's like, he's like, this is incredible. We never get a second. Thank you very much, Carla. We're going to the next call. Bang. Uh, what could you tell me about, um, uh, about, about the BU basketball program? Well, I was on a freshman team. I said, well, you know, the, I think the biggest and toughest problem for BU is it's going to be a transition made between this year and the years to come. This will be the first time that they've ever had an influx, a large influx of black students. The mm. game is going to change. Yeah. It's going to change now. Right. Third call. So for the hour, those two lines never stopped ringing. Here it was, and then that was it. That I was knew. You would, yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. I was, I, I was fine with just leaving. I said, at the end, he says, "No, I don't want. We want to stay for longer." So I supposed to stay for like what, fifteen minutes? I want to stand for the whole hour. I think it went two hours, in fact. So I leave. He comes up to my door 15 minutes after the show. You got to come back on the show. You got to come. Alan, I am not coming back on your show. I, I did it once. That's great. Right. So no, 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 no. You have to come on the show. And so I said, no. A couple of days later, he calls me back. I said, no. He says, I'll tell you what. I'll pay you $15 a show. I said, yes. <laughs> I said, $15? Just to go on, this, go on the air and run your mouth? Right. That's what my father said. They're right. going to pay you to run your mouth? Right. I said, okay. And But, you know, it's interesting because imagine how much they, he was getting from the sponsors. Yeah, well, I didn't want to think about that part. The sponsorship probably increased. I know you didn't. I didn't think about it. All I thought about was 
I get a chance to talk about something that I love to talk about anyway. Right. I, I worked at the front desk and I used to, and all the guys come get their mail. They always want to talk sports. Right. And then once I became the guru in the in the big room, everybody right. said, man, you want to know something? Ask that guy. Right. Because if he doesn't know it, I bet you within 24 hours, he'll find it out. Right. And I read, I read like you wouldn't believe. There's no internet, say cool. So I had to read all this stuff yeah. and memorize all this stuff. Then I would go to libraries and try to see if there's any film documentation of different things. I I became a, a sports institution. I wasn't interested in just being a sportscaster. I had to be the most knowledgeable and I had to be the best. Right. I had to be the one sportscaster that you weren't going to stump me yeah. if I did my homework. Right. Well, let's let, let's transition over to getting into some some truth prescription here. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you gave us a great story, really just about how your gift can transport you to greater opportunities, something that you that you love, your passion, how it can transport you. For those who are listening to the show for the first time, the truth prescription is essentially about dealing with truth, that true success, true and lasting success really only comes through accepting truth. So with Uncle Jimmy today, call him my uncle, he's actually my godfather. With Uncle Jimmy today, we're going to talk about either a personal or professional. We'll start with now. Mm -hmm. Uncle Jim, you want to do a personal or professional? It doesn't bother me either road you go down. All right, let's let's start with, with let's start with personal. Let's mm -hmm. start with personal. Right. So give us a, a a personal truth story, some truth in your personal life that you ignored, but it was when you accepted that truth you were able to break past certain barriers and get through to the other side. The first time I was called the N word, mm. I was very young. Mm. I had no idea what it meant. Yeah. I was saying, well, why would that person say that to me? Right. So I went home and I asked my mom. I said, what does the word nigger mean? And yeah. she says it means that you're a fool, so forth, so forth. and it's a state that they use uh, towards black people in the South, and so forth, so forth, so forth. I'm going to myself. Wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on, hold on. Hold on. I'm go back and talk to this guy. So I did. I'm, I'm like seven years old. I don't not because I was taught not to have fear of anything or anybody. So it's, it's on our way to school. So I marched right up to his house and stood outside his gate. I said, "You're a nigger for calling me one, and you're stupid too." He came, he came, he comes running, he comes running down the stand. I stood right, there. Right. I figured this white man is going to beat the living crap out of me. Oh, this is a or, man that said this. Yeah, yeah. Or I'm going to beat the living crap out of him. One of the two. So he comes to the gate and he stops and he just glares at me. I said, yeah, I'm not afraid of you. I'm just not. I said, my parents made me smart and I am nobody's fool. And I had to realize or you say, come to that truthful moment that that was how I was going to be described, whether it be openly, verbally, or more importantly, whether I was going to be perceived as that sure. from the moment I walked into any room that I had to deal with white people, mm -hmm. a group of them, particularly sure. white men, mm -hmm. never had that much of a problem with white women. They're much more sensitive to a degree, but. Some of, of, some of them some were of intrigued them. Some and interesting. Some of them were, yeah, well, you know, that goes, that, that goes with the territory. That goes with Celebrity. the myth. The myth. The myth. The myth. The myth. Oh, please. <laughs> anyway, but that whole thing followed me every single step of my life. And yeah. how many times have I had to tell general managers, program directors, this guy, Channel 9 and so forth, I am nobody's nigger. Yeah. Just understand that. Yeah. You would deal with you an use that word? Oh, yes, I would. Right to their faces in, in boardrooms. Interesting. I'd say, listen, they're good Negroes and they're bad niggas. You're <laughs> dealing with a bad nigger. It's as simple as that because I am filled with all the hostility of everything that's happened in my life. I yeah. still have not lost the capacity to love you right. or care for you. I have more white people in my life than you would ever dream. And what many of you don't understand is half my family is white. Right. I said, I just happened to be the, the dark chocolate part of what happened between Naomi and James Myers. I said, but don't you ever think for a moment that I don't have a lot of your brain inside of me. I can't think like you do. I can't scheme and, and lie and cheat and do all the things that you do. I don't wish to do those things. Right. I wish to stand above that type of thinking. But you're still in the in the quiet moments of your life and sometimes when you're sitting there and you're watching me on TV and you see how good I really am yeah. it kills you to have to say you know 
that nigga's better than me. <laughs> and he might be better than anybody that's come down this road. I'm going to have to deal with this. And so then through all of the, as I say, trials, trials and travails, all of the times you've been called it privately. I mean, the first week at uh, WBZ, my first radio job. I'm happy. I'm a good, I'm just a happy little Negro guy coming down the hall, ready to do my work. Right. And somebody said, oh, you're just a happy nigga, aren't you? I turned around. I said, what? Wow. Bam. <laughs> he knocked him out. One one punch on the floor. <laughs> and I said, now, get up. Now we didn't. Go upstairs to management <laughs> right. and tell them what I did. Yeah, bloody lip and everything. I said, if you ever use that word to me again, it might be the last time you ever use it. We didn't. We didn't even mention that you were uh, once known as Little Chocolate. Yeah, you were a, I was a good, pretty uh, good, pretty, uh, pretty good, little, light, pretty good little boxer, lightweight. Yep, boxer, pretty, pretty featherweight, light, featherweight, pretty, pretty yeah. good little. Bo- I could handle myself. I knew what to do. Yeah, you know, I hadn't lost any fights until my mom found out. And, and she beat the <laughs> living crap out of me, so I became like forty-four and one. Right. <laughs> that was a painful moment at the breakfast table because I mean, your mom's your, first. She first she strikes me, right. and then I hear you fighting. I hear you boxing. Now she's throwing haymakers to right. everyone, and I'm <laughs> dipping and diving and ducking and trying to block punches. I can't throw anything back, mom. Mom, let it go, mom. I promise you, I will not fight again. And right. I didn't. Right. I, I kept my you word stopped. to her, but it was painful. Oh yeah. But uh-huh. the thing was that. I was I was always a small guy, but I was never afraid of big people, yeah. whether elementary, junior, high school, high school. I wanted to find out who's the biggest guys in here, right. and that's who I'll fight. Right. And, they, and all my friends just say, you're crazy. Yeah. He'll pick you up and throw you through the air. Yeah. I fought this guy, this one guy. I had to fight him for a week, a whole week. My mother was even getting worried. <laughs> she was saying, I'm going to have to call a cop. My son could get himself killed. Because every day I was coming home, you, my face would, was beaten. He would just pound me, pound me, pound me. Then I, then one day, about that seventh day, I had him on the ground. I'm pounding him. He's like, okay, okay, I won't bother you anymore. I won't bother you anymore. Then my reputation just soared. It was like, right. don't bother him. Now, one thing, I never, I would never would fight someone smaller than me. I wouldn't get, if you were my size, I wouldn't fight you. But if you're one inch bigger, you're in trouble. Right. One right, inch. If I right, could see he's right, a little taller right. than me, okay, I'll fight him. And the thing was that <clears throat> now, did you, that was did, that reputation that that you get. My sister was the fighter though. Yeah, Donette, oh, yeah. Donette could beat every beat up every boy in the neighborhood. In the neighborhood. And she's like shorter than me, right. hits like 10 mules, right. and loved to fight. Donette would love to fight. We have a big playground on a mm-hmm. baseball field coming right. from our junior high school home. I'm coming home one day, and, Don, and I'm seeing about 500 to 1,000 kids on the dust flying. They went, right. Yeah! Right. I said, Flani must be fighting again. Now, now, people listening to your voice, we talked about this yesterday, people listening to your voice think, when they see you, they think, Oh, I thought this guy was 6'2", 6'3", oh, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Oh, now, you're 5'3". You're, you're five, five, right? No, 5'7 five, and a half. Five, give me, seven. Come on, give, give me a break. <laughs> Just because you're like 5'9". <laughs> no, 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 I'm not shrinking yet. I may be shrinking, but not that that was funny. So you're <laughs> you're going to pay for that one off the air. Don't worry. I know there's a camera running, so I cannot go over there and grab him right now. I'm 5'7 and a half. So and I'm holding five, on seven. to that half. Believe me, I need half. that half. I need that half an inch. But Now, did you find that... Now, I know that you said that you know, if you were taller, you would fight them. Did you also find that you were also attracted to taller women? Because I know a lady that you've been with for a long time. She's almost six feet. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I always wanted a woman I could look up to. So I dated <laughs> taller girls. I wanted, I dated taller girls. And the thing was, they, they would say, oh, oh, he's so cute. And so, so forth. That's he's hilarious. so cute. I'm right. gonna have to bend down to kiss you. I said, right. "Well, bend on down because it's gonna be worth your while." Right. That's right. the kind right. of confidence that I, like I had. That. I like and, that. And 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 earlier in my life, probably in college. Yeah. I mean, I was dating girls like five, ten, six feet. I mean, yeah. and and tall. Right. Shapely women, but right. big. Yeah. And I just like big. Yeah. I said, "There's nothing wrong with big. There's more woman to love. More woman to love." And so I'd be walking down the street, and they and these guys would be saying, "Look at that." Look, Look at that Mutt and Jeff couple. My <laughs> gosh, that woman, that woman, she's going to kill you. I always heard, man, you better hope she doesn't fall and she's going to kill you. I said, trust me, I can handle it. Right. If she right. falls, I'll can, catch her. Right, right, But right. the thing was, yeah, I always liked, I always liked, liked taller women. And okay. I always liked the woman that I had to look up to. Right. Because I looked up to my mom was much shorter than me. Right. But boy, there's, there's something about the challenge yeah. of 
of getting her to overcome the height difference because most women want to have their necks bent back up, getting being kissed, and and he's 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 much taller than me. I said to myself, "You have no idea what you're missing down here." <laughs> I like that. I said, I like "If that. you yes. dove into the ocean, right." And you swam on the surface. Yeah. That would be one thing. But once you go down underneath that water, there's a whole world down here. Yes. I said, yeah. and you're going to see some fascinating things. It's and, like being in an aquarium. And, and, <laughs> and, and thank God, you know, for, for all the, for, for the many women that I've dated over the years. Um, how they, how they old are you now? I'm 69. 69. 69. Wow. This, you know, so much this was early in in my life that I did that, yeah. that I of did course. most of my dating yeah, because course. I'm I'm a reporter. I'm traveling all over the place. I'm going all over the world. I'm, I I don't have time to to establish any permanent you know sure. relationships. Sure. So you know, I dated. I dated a lot. And I loved it, and I, I love sex. So yeah, of course, I mean, I wanted women that that were hot to sex, and they wanted sex too. And right. it was a different era. Right. See, it was it's long before AIDS. Yeah, long before all the other things that made us all channel our our inner our inner sexual craziness. Yeah, and say, look. I don't want to have my thing falling off. Right. I don't want to have. I don't want. I want to be on a needle for the rest of my life and right. so forth. But yeah, I mean, even my even my elementary school girlfriend, Laura Helen Camacho, she was like three <laughs> inches taller than me. She's an Indian girl. Oh right. my gosh! And I was only like five one then. Uh-huh. She had to be at least five three. Uh-huh. Man, I said I will climb that tree. mountain. You don't have to know mountain. You don't have to worry. I'll find my way to the top. Right. And the first time she kissed me, she just leaned down and laid this little wet kiss on me. I said, "Don't worry. If you live in Africa, I will follow you home." <laughs> She only lived on Horner Street, three blocks away, and nice. I just followed her back and forth. So, for your your personal your personal truth, it was as a black man realizing and recognizing how others ex- realizing and recognize and accepting how others mm-hmm. would perceive you. No, I never accepted it. I would okay. not accept it. Well, no, but not, I accepted. Not, the, I accepted why they thought that. Way. Right. When I say accepted, not accepting the definition of mm-hmm. it. But accepting the fact that this is a reality, that this, is, reality. How the, this is how the world sees me, deal with it. and in order for me to be successful, I need to just move move through it. Yep. All right. Let's go to the professional now. Okay. Give us a professional true story. <sighs> Let me see. I think the the biggest professional crisis came when I was working in radio. At WBZ. Now I went from WTBU radio to WBUR, which is the big FM station at BU. And the gentleman that was running the BUR station left and came to Channel 4, WBZ radio and yeah. WBZ TV. Name was Clark Schmidt. Now Clark remembered me because I was doing a show for him in college. And all of a sudden they needed a minority producer. Producer. Yeah, producer. Okay. You, I'm going to produce Boston College football games and Boston College uh, and um, Patriot football games. Boston College on Saturday, Patriots on Sunday. And so you were the, you were the producer? I was the producer. So you produced Never produced anything in my life. And behind the microphone. No, 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 no. Just producer. Just producing. Just so, producer. They, so there was on-air talent. On, oh, yeah. They, they, these guys are doing the game. So producer comes in, sets up the commercials. You know what the producer does. I'm, I'm, yeah, I set up the absolutely. whole broadcast. Yeah. And then I sit there and I have to listen. I have to listen and they have, they have a little a cue sheet where you say, um, would score 24-14, Patriots leading. We take this break. Boom. And then... Um, hit it! I tell the the um, the technician to play the commercial. That's basically it. Yeah, you got to pull all these spots. You have to run them in order, and it's a lot of money now, so yeah. you can't miss a spot or anything. And Ned Foster was the guy who was doing it, but they had lost another producer who was supposed to do this. Ned met his eventual wife and wanted to get married, and he wanted to spend weekends with her. He didn't want to work weekends anymore. Yeah, so he tells Clark Schmidt. You got to find somebody to produce. Yeah, and it and so management told him it should be a minority. Mm. Okay, it wasn't that they wanted me? It's just that basically they felt they needed to have a minority. Now remember, Sekou, I'm talking about when I walked into that building the first day. I walked down that hall. There wasn't a white face. There wasn't a black face in radio at Channel 4. Not one. I walked down this long hallway. Oh, Men, all the women, studios on each the side. Studio, no, no. <laughs> offices, studios, everything. Okay. Not one black person. 
There but was, I've been in situations. Hey, yeah, yes, yes. But uh, <laughs> but I've been used. I've been used to that. But it is still the most uncomfortable feeling for a young person, unless you have some type of strength within you to say, "Look, I'm here to do a job, and this is my job." So consequently, I'm. I get the job, and um, about. And there's a lot of funny stuff that went about the interview. But anyway, Clark calls me in. So I come in. I said, OK, look, you called me. What do you want? I said, I'm over at BU. I'm going into my junior year. What do you want? He says, I'm looking for a producer. I said, well, what does a producer do? Right. So here I am thinking he's going to offer me like 20,000, you know, yeah. a year. Yeah. I'm going to come in and just put pull the spots on a Saturday. Yeah. You have to be here two hours before the game. You have to be here an hour after the game. And the game lasts two hours. That's five hours. Yeah. So, OK. So Ned Foster, whose job it was, was told to train me. He said, well, Ned will be there with you for the first three weeks. After week one, Ned never came back. Didn't show up for week two. Didn't show up for week three. So I was trained in one week, two games. That's it. You either sink or swim. And was there pay? Did they pay you? Oh, this is the best part about it. So I asked him, well, how much is this job going to pay? Right. I said, I'm in college. You know, I'm, I'm supposed to be. Right. He said, mm, right, and, no. and Ned was getting paid. Yeah. Oh, no. Ned was, Ned was full time. I'm only part time. I'm only working yeah. on weekends. So right. Eight hours. It's supposed to be eight hours a week. We're trying to be like 10 hours a week. An hour. I said, what? An hour. What? $2 an hour. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. What? You yeah. called me. <laughs> right. You called all me. All the way from <laughs> Roxbury, Dorchester right, right. to come all the way out here to BZ. Right. I said, for $2 an hour? I said, have you lost your <laughs> god darn mind? I didn't, because I tried never to use damn. But I said, if you lost your god darn mind, I said, god darn. If you lost your god darn mind. So next thing I knew, you're going to laugh when I tell you this. He'll still remember it. I dove over his desk. Over his desk and grabbed him around the neck. How dare you? <laughs> why would you, why would you do that? I was pissed. That's why. <laughs> God damn. I said. I said. I said. You should have known me from PUR. You know I'm not. You were paying me more at PUR than this. Right, you were right. paying me fifteen dollars and twenty five dollars a show at, at PUR. Right. So I pushed him back in the seat. I'm walking down the hall. He comes running out of his office and grabs me around the waist. So now the white security guard there, Fred Silver, sees this. He thinks there's a fight going on in the hall. Fred comes up. Fred's running down the hall. He has a gun. And I, I said, don't even think about it because I'm holding Clark with one hand. So he says, who the hell is this crazy young black person? I said, you can kiss my ass. Right. And I walked out the front door, right? I go home. I go home. Phone starts ringing. I take it off the hook. Right. Ring, 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 ring. Every 15 minutes ring. Because you know who it is. Yeah, I know. Right. I know. So. The 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 price is just going up with every ring. No, no, it was not. (laughs) Clark said, listen, maybe you don't understand the opportunity that's here. When he finally got me on the phone, I said, opportunity? I said, let me put it to you like this. It goes back to that end thing, the Negro thing, or the slave thing. I said, I don't work for slave wages. It's as simple as that. Yeah, I said I could stay right here at BUR and make twenty five bucks a week. I produce my own show. I can walk in when I want to, get it done. I'm out the door, and I got all the BU athletes coming on my show. Yeah, he says, but this way you get a chance to deal in the professional world. I didn't still didn't want to hear it. Clark said, "I'm not letting this go because I'm the only black person he knew uh-huh. that could step in and do this." Uh-huh. So he keeps calling me, and calling me. I said, "I mean, did the price eventually go up? I mean, well, on. we'll get there." Make Jeez, a long two dollars okay, an hour. Two dollars an hour and sixty-eight. My first check, <laughs> which I refused to cash, eight dollars after taxes, six dollars and sixty-seven cents. <laughs> now shows you, you oh you're gonna get a better laugh <laughs> by refusing to cash it. I was messing up the entire bookkeeping system at Westinghouse Broadcasting because every check has to come back in cashed. Right. So I didn't cash the first one. Didn't cash the second one. I got $60. I got $12. I got $13. So you're telling me you went back and worked there for the $2 an hour. Oh, yeah. I said to myself, let me think about this. He said, BZ's the fifth. How come he couldn't just pay you more? He wasn't going to pay me more. It's as simple as that. He'll probably say budget or whatever. And I just felt it was so unfair. But the one thing he had me hooked on was I loved walking in those studios, seeing those microphones, saying, you know. And he told me, he says, well, you know, here's if you think about being on the air like you are at, 
at BUR right now. This is an opportunity for you to make a professional life of this. Mm. I said, okay. Started producing football games and, 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 and football games on Saturday, Saturday and Sunday. So then the season changes. Football season's over. They don't want to let me go. Mm-hmm. Now I'm in school full time, Sekou. Right. Full time. Right. My father expected me to go to law school. I'm, I'm, I'm getting great grades. I'm on the dean's list. And I'm saying to myself, this is what I want to do. It's what you really want to do. How do you take this $2 and make it work? Because car fare was more than that. And I said to myself, you know, one day I'm going to tell this story to the world so they know. So yeah. eventually I, I, I took the checks and they had to print new ones. Got to tore them up and just pile them in a little pile and just put them under the, um, and under the accountant's office door or whatever, <laughs> something like that. And they said, we got to write new checks. So by the time they gave me checks, I would, you know, you know, the stub. Yeah. I would keep the stub. So I framed the first stub. I still have it somewhere. Right. And so I told Clark when I came back, I said, I'll tell you what, I may have started off for $2 an hour, but you're going to tell me sitting right here, right now, what is the highest amount of money you've ever paid a radio producer? He said, how about three, three fifty an hour. $350 no, an hour? No, 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 no. Three $3.50 an hour. It's not, it, it, it's, a, it's, an ent- it's an entrance level job, Sekou. You're, okay. you're, you're really, you're, you're nothing to them. They could find producers left and right, but they couldn't find one like this. One who knew yeah. everything about sports. Right. Didn't, need, didn't need books. If the announcers made a mistake, I could tell them in their earplug, that is not it. It was 1944 that the Bruins finished this play. And they said, this kid's a freaking walking encyclopedia. How the hell does he know all of this stuff? Right. And I didn't have books. So by the time I was done producing, I, okay, so I moved from there to five days a week. I'm doing Celtics basketball. And, and going Bruins. to school full time? No, 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 you're not listening. Celtics basketball and Bruins hockey games, right? Now, this is before FM became huge. So the Celtics would be on, then I have to stay there, and the Bruins would be on delay. I would still have to punch all the commercials in and make sure the technician was playing them. Wasn't out of touch of machine or anything. Mm. Then FM came in. Then we had a simulcast. We had to put the Celtics on FM and the Bruins on AM. I sat in a studio about as big as this room with one deck, one set of spots there. Sometimes spots had to be crossed. So I had to switch spots and give them to him. Switch spots, give them to him. I'm running like like a Grand Central Station operation sitting on the windowsill at BZ. So I did two games Mm. at a time. I had to be the only producer, one of the only producers in the United States doing this. And we but you weren't fe- in school. You no, 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 no. This is with a full school. Well, that's though. what I meant. Yeah. I have my books. I'm doing my homework while I'm listening to two games. Bruins that are standby on the Bruins. They're gonna they get ready to go to spot. How do you know? Because I can hear the stoppage in the play. Uh, Celtics are coming up. They're gonna do. They, they they'll be going for another four minutes because I knew what the timeout schedule was for basketball. Right. Now hockey's different. Stoppage. They'll just stop and sometimes they'll just hold the puck and so forth. I said. Boom, we would go. And I got to work with, okay, Gil Santos, Hall of Fame football announcer for the Patriots and the Boston College Eagles. Uh, Johnny Most was the basketball announcer for the Boston Celtics. I don't think he's still, I still don't think he's in the Hall of Fame. There's something really fishy about that story Mm. because uh, I worked with Johnny for years. Uh, Let me see. Bob, Bob Wilson was the Bruins announcer. Oh my goodness, what a set of pipes. And, And Bob Wilson did not like Jimmy Myers. (laughs) <laughs> he was his name his real name was Bob Castellano and I really think that he had a problem with black people but we became pretty decent you know colleagues yeah. after I had to straighten him out a couple of times and you know I and he's big like 64 you know I me mean, the big guys yes I said when he comes in here today cuz he said something about something happened in the game and, he's, and he kind of got out of control and he made an insulting remark on the air, you never insult your crew on the air. That's one thing you don't do. Well, it's obvious that the people back in Boston are having a problem. Well, we're producing a second game here, Bob. We got the Celtics game going into overtime, and your game's in the second period. So we missed. We might. We might have been. We didn't even miss it. We might have been late on one spot. Right now, this is the big one. One night, I'm doing both games. They're they're in St. Louis. The Bruins are in St. Louis and the Celtics are, I think, down in Atlanta, whatever. I'm sitting on the windowsill. 
And all of a sudden, this this shocking wave blew me off of the windowsill. It literally blew me off the window. So I'm having my books, my, my books, everything went out here and I'm laying on the floor and I'm shaking my head. I said, oh my gosh, what the hell happened? SDS, Students for Democratic Society, blew up the trailer, which was only 20 feet outside of plate, outside of, um, you know, window. Yeah. Big bulletproof glass window. And this is where the, I, I was sitting in the control room and Boom, the impact shook the whole building, right? Mm. And that's why we missed the spot. <laughs> and I didn't feel like hearing his crap. Right. I said, right. Are you crazy? Right. So I said, I said Lee, I think Lee, the, the, the technician's name was Lee. And Lee said, Are you okay? I said, I don't know. I'm feeling my head hurts and everything. And my shoulder is like killing me. I got whipped off. I got knocked off the thing. It was a big explosion too. Blew the whole trailer up. So I look out the window and the, and the glass showerings from the trailer are falling down along with metal pieces and so mm. forth. I said, somebody just blew up the trailer. I said, call the police department. Call the bomb squad. So we called the police department, the bomb squad. So they come. And now Bob is complaining. He doesn't understand what's going on, which, is, which he has a right Bob had kind of a temper, but I told Bob, I said, you got to chill. Something's going on here, and I can't tell you what it is by phone because I have a phone line directly into his ear plug, into his ear set. So he doesn't know that I said, we've had an explosion at the station. Once the fire department got there, I said, they are telling us we have to leave right now. There could be a secondary device here and so forth. I said, you're on your own. So, so I said, you, I hope, I hope you, I hope you got a lot of cover material because we're not coming back in unless the fire department tells us we can come back right. in. So we go out the building. So I'm sitting out there in a the parking lot. I'm saying, oh, this going they're gonna blame me for this too. I can feel it coming. <laughs> Jimmy must not have wanted to work, so he set a bomb off. I said, Myers, calm down. What's the hell's the matter with you? You're alive. This thing could have killed you. Yeah. For two fifty an hour. So, uh, so, 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 what, so, 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 make so, a long story short, so we had a bit sheet. Right. And a bit sheet, you have to write down everything that happens during a broadcast. It's yeah. a mistake. Yeah. My bit sheets became so clean, I was proud of them. I wanted to go through a double broadcast, nothing on the sheets. Made mm. every commercial, got everything in, got everything out. This night, it got a little ragged. Yeah. Yeah. 1002. Bomb explodes. <laughs> 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 10.03, pick self up off floor. Groggy, head hurting, shoulder killing me. Still have not figured out what somebody blew up. Right. 10.04, looking out window with shards coming down like snow. <laughs> 10.05, I think somebody still has that bitch sheet I said. 10, 10, uh, 10.20, told to evacuate building. Will not be back unless I'm told I can come back. <laughs> <laughs> exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. So, <laughs> excuse me. Of course, my management thought it was funny. Wasn't your life on the line there, right? Right, of course. And they wanted to act like it was nothing. I said, Are you out of your mind? Now they have chain link fences around the station and everything. But these guys actually set a bomb that could have killed somebody. Yeah. And I know they're out there somewhere. They maybe got away with it. I think they got away with it. I remember you. But that's what producing radio was like. And, and immediately, immediately, I walked in that Monday and said, look, I don't want to hear from Bob Wilson or anybody else. I'm done. Yeah. I mean, it's getting dangerous to work in this place. Yeah. I'll go back to college radio. Right. So they want to give me a raise. I said, wait a minute. Wait. A black man's got to be damn near blown up <laughs> before you give him a 50 cent raise? Are you kidding me? 50 cents. 50 cents. So, so, so now you- No, no, I'm, I'm from two fifty to like $3 an $3. hour now, right? I went from $3, I jumped to $4. Now they want me to produce this show called Calling All Sports with Guy Manella. Okay. Guy was an ex-news person who didn't work, it didn't work for him at BZ. So he wanted to, um, so they wanted to keep him because they brought him from Milwaukee, excellent newsman, good, very good journalist. But he wasn't a sports guy. Guy would guy be the first one. He, he laughed about sports. Everything was funny to him. Yeah. But people weren't taking him seriously because the guy that was there before him, Eddie Andelman, had this whole thing about sports. And people were into, they were getting into sports talk radio. But Eddie wanted more money. He left for another station. And Guy was the news director who they had fired. They said, well, we, what are we going to do with Manila? Let's push him over into sports. So he started doing sports. And it was, he was becoming pretty successful. I become his producer. He's over the top. 
his numbers doubled. Mm. Doubled because I could find every guest he wanted. Yeah. And I have a talk button where I can talk in his ear. So whatever he didn't know, uh, no, 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 guys, Washington Redskins, boom, boom, boom. Well, and, and so he gives me the nickname Slick. He says, well, my producer Slick tells me that it's the Washington Redskins in 1971. He says, boy, your producer knows a lot, guy. Your producer knows more than you. So guy's starting to get a little uh, edgy. Right, 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 of course. So I did Calling All Sports at $4 an hour, two, night, two hours a night, as well as games. Yeah. So now I am working 20 to 30 to possibly 40 hours a week. I want to race. Yeah. So I went to $5 an hour. I said, okay, now fine, there's 200 bucks. Then this, okay. this is kind of working. Okay. And then the opportunity to go on the air happened one night, of course, when it's the typical story. One of the talents didn't show up. We're coming out of a hockey game. Wow. And I go look in the studio. I said, there's nobody in the studio. What are we going to do? So this guy, Dick Summer, God bless you, Dick Summer. He, he did a, a show called The Loving Touch. Oh, my. The guy had a voice smooth from 12 to, 12 to 6. He doesn't come on at 12. I said, Dick, you're going to have to go sit in the studio. You're going to have to fill in because we can't find John Carlson, whoever's supposed to be doing the show is John Carlson. He said, I don't think he knows. Maybe he didn't read the schedule right. So Dick looks at me and says, I don't know enough about sports to do this. You're going to do it. Mm. And it was like, no, no. Okay. <laughs> so, oh, no, no. I said, I'm not giving up my $5 an hour job right. just to go in there and, 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 and say some things. And then all of a sudden I get fired. I walked in, phone lines filled after a game. They were, people want to talk. I think it's a Celtics game if I'm right. Anyway, this is right down my alley. So I'm sitting there and he sat right there for the first couple of minutes. Got up after the first commercial break and said, you're fine. You don't need me. He said, I'm going to tell you something. You were born to do this. Take Mm -hmm. it on. So I did it for like, um, came on like 10, 15 to like 11 o'clock. And then Carlson comes flying through the door. I said, John Carlson's here. I can go back to my producing thing. Thank you very much. It's been fun. That's like, and we, we had this whole habit. Guy had a habit of not letting children on the air. Right. But it's Saturday night and we don't have anybody screen calls. Yeah. So who is the first call I get? A child. (laughs) Hi, Judy Myers. I said, oh my God. I said, hi, how you doing? Right, I, but I used to tell a guy let kids on sometime, but you don't, you don't want you don't want the airways to be flooded with kids because kids hear radio and they want to be on it. Yeah, so I started talking to him. Next thing you know, I started getting all adults and so forth. Fifteen years later, that young man would give me would okay my loan to get my first to get my first brand new Porsche. Wow, that's how life works. That's so. And he became so like cool. he became executive at the bank that I was at. I paid off three Porsches at that bank, and he became just one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. And he said to you, "I called you one he night." Said, yeah. He said, "I was the kid that called you the first night." Wow. Uh, because I mean, when he came when he came on, I'm looking at the at the producer. I mean, looking at the technician. He can't touch the phones. Yeah. All the phones are just lit. You're not screening anything. Yeah. And so that was it. And that was the beginning. And what happened from there was three weeks later, Cyanoff, the radio general manager, came to me and said, uh, I'm getting a lot of po- positive feedback about what you did on the air. I thought he was coming to fire me. Right. But anyway, <laughs> he says, he says, how'd you like to try weekends? Mm. He says, that way it saves me from having to bring Johnny Most in when he's not working on a weekend. Bob Wilson from hockey when he's not working on the weekend. John Carlson and the rest of these guys. So I said, sure, I'll do it. So ratings went from it was, we were ranked, we were rated fourth mm. in the market behind three music shows on a Saturday night. Who the heck's gonna be listening to 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 sports radio on a Saturday, a Saturday night? night? Right. In six months, it was one, and it stayed one to the day I walked away from it. Wow. So your uh, bring us back. Your professional truth prescription was that no matter what anyone said about my color, I was going to overwhelm them with my brilliance in what I was doing, mm-hmm. whether it was sports radio, television, talk, serious talk, producing, producing every job I wanted to do. I wanted to do it to the best of my ability. And I told myself, well, one, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, and I didn't do drugs. So I said, I never have to worry about this. So all I have to do is worry about the 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 colored person syndrome is of being on time. Yeah. So I would show up two hours ahead of time. Yeah. If the game came on at 
seven, I'm there at five. Yeah. And these are hours I'm not getting paid for. Of course. I show up with my books and I'll do my homework right here because nobody's going to say Jimmy Myers was late. Yeah. And that's the way I operate. I wanted to break all perceptions. That's the, that's the true prescription to make, I was surrounded by white people. So you have to say white people. There was yeah. no, there were very few blacks yeah. and I got nine blacks hired there in radio and TV before I left. Okay. Because that was my, that was my motivation to, at I didn't want to be WBZ. the only, oh yeah. I didn't want to be the, I, I did not want to be the only person when I walked down that hall that I would see. Right. Didn't want to see it. You don't want to, you don't want to see that again. I, I even got my own brother hired as a salesperson. And that was part one of the Truth Prescription podcast with Jimmy Myers. The second half of this interview will drop on Monday, April 2nd. Until then, as Dr. Gathers always says, the truth shall set you free if you let it.